Tonight we're uh, fortunate to have Professor Patias with us on the podcast. He's a senior lecturer at the Department of Psychology at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And thank you so much for coming to discuss this very important topic with us. Uh, it seems to be trending. Uh, we've been getting a lot of inquiries about it, and uh, you've certainly written a lot about it. So uh, we'd love to hear some of your thoughts about, uh, first of all, about repressed memories, false memories, you know, how are they implanted, and why this fad of repressed memories that was, or recovered memories that was so popular in the 80s and 90s uh, is now back again. Uh, so maybe if you could give us a little overview on uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, if I focus on repressed memories to start with, false memories is a slightly different um, topic which explains a lot that happens in repressed memories. But um, repressed memories is the idea that came from Freud that you can go through a trauma, you then um, suppress that trauma because it's so painful. And then there's a period of time where you did not even know that the trauma happened, and then you can recall it later. The trouble is, we don't actually think that this is how the mind works. Um, Freud came up with this idea from just seeing patients. He never measured anything, never did any science, apart from a little bit of neurology that he did before he did this. And um, science has really not substantiated um, the idea of repressed memories. Um, as you mentioned, the 1980s were, um, there was a, a surge in false memory cases through, belief, through therapists believing in repressed memories and trying to encourage um, patients to recover repressed memories. So you saw many, many cases of false memories in the 1980s. In the 1990s, the scientists caught on to the problem. They realized that a lot of these memories in the 1980s were false. There was quite a few cases that were obviously false, um, and some legal cases as well. And that's when the memory wars began in the 1990s. Um, the 1990s is when cognitive psychologists who were not focused on clinical psychology for, for the last two decades suddenly realized what was happening in these uh, dreadful um, uh, therapies. And then they, they started to speak out and say, I don't, we, we don't actually think that repressed memories are, are real. And um, there's been this battle ever since. And just to bring you up, up to date on this, there's still quite a lot of clinicians that will not let go of this idea of repressed memories. Um, and they, they just do not call it repressed memories anymore. They call it dissociative amnesia. And uh, to give you an idea of how big the problem is, this category of dissociative amnesia, which is very similar to repressed memories, is in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of um, Mental Disorders. Um, so it is probably not going to go away if it's embedded into the uh, the DSM. Um, so that's that's how that's that's how it is right now. Uh, sorry to interrupt. So dissociative amnesia did that um, get recognized into the DSM five uh, along with these studies, or was this something that was categorized for some other issue? Because I'm very familiar with that. DSM-5. I haven't run across that myself, but when did yeah. that get into the the manual? It got into the manual um, through 
clinical folklore, but basically, you know, going all the way back to Freud, the ideas never really died out. There's no measurement studies that established it. Um, in in my view, it's never it's never been established. Um, but to give you an idea, it's been in the, the DSM for a long time. So um, in the night in 1980, for example, it was called psychogenic amnesia. Same same concept. 1994, the name was changed to dissociative amnesia, and it's stuck in the DSM ever ever since. That you know there is about maybe 20 of um, researchers like me who are um, making arguments in various articles that we think it should be taken out of the DSM. The reason that we think dissociative amnesia should be taken out of the DSM is because every time a clinician diagnoses it, they do not actually know that it's caused by trauma. So they are sometimes observing real amnesia, but they are just guessing that it's caused by a traumatic um, event. Um, it's really too difficult to um, to rule out it being caused by something going on neuro neurologically. Um, so there's you know, quite a lot of us who think that amnesia is always neurological, you know, or it's always organic um, um, amnesia is. So that's very interesting. Okay. And dangerous. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so you've, you've spent and you've, you know, for, written extensively with respect to um, recovered memory, the debate about it. And I would like to just zero in a little bit on, if you can, about some of the studies that you've been involved with and, and some of the papers you've written so that we can tease out, if we can, what would lead you and other uh, experts in the area to say that really um, these types of recovered memories are not reliable and really not, not something which is a genuine um, manifestation of something that did happen in the past? Well, the first thing to mention is, is in, in, in the entire... Um, um, literature, there is not good evidence of uh, repressed repression. So let, let's put, let's just say that first, you know, so in other words, all the converging evidence from um, neurological studies or, and from cognitive studies all converge, um, not point to the idea that repression is possible. Okay. So, so let's just pause there for one sec. So the, the amount of evidence that exists essentially in and of itself about repressed memories or recovered memory is essentially unreliable science. Yes. If you think about repression, it's a, it's an invisible concept. So it's not really in this, in the realm of measurable science. That's one of the problems of it, you know? Um, however, in the area of measurable science where you do actually measure things that you can measure, yeah, this is what I want the way to say is none of the evidence points towards the idea of repression. It all points towards the idea that trauma is usually remembered all too well. You know, so I'm thinking about um, home, um, uh, neurotransmitter studies that, you know, um, I'm thinking about um, uh, stress studies with animals. All of them point towards stress and trauma being remembered all too well. So, so the, the more shocking, the more you remember it. Um, 
so that's that's on the one side. There's not good memory. There's not good evidence for um, repression. On the other side, there is a lot of measurable studies. Um, studies that measure real things that you can really measure, such as false memory studies, that explain this phenomenon much better than the repression hypothesis. You know, so in other words, this is what I think you might be getting at, getting at, at the at, with the question. In other words, we have discovered that there's some factors that lead to false memories. So we have discovered that um, if you give false suggestions to um, somebody, a lot of individuals create a false memory uh, shortly afterwards um, in false memory studies. We know that we can implant whole false memories for things like being lost in the mall, um, um, things like um, and spilling punch at a um, at a wedding. Um, these are all autobiographical memories, um, and and that again that is done usually by um, suggestion that something happened that it didn't, and then you give a delay in time, and then you test their memory later. Okay, so th this is really interesting. So on so on one hand as you've described, there are um, some ways to measure or to take some science to determine what happens when somebody experiences a traumatic event. And you said something which is very interesting. Uh, when someone experiences a traumatic event, they remember it all too well. In other words, it's something that generally stays with the individual as time goes on. And of, yes. course, and of course, sometimes we may have time impacts memory, but it's not something that they just forget or repress and then recover. It stays with them throughout time. And and there is some evidence for that, you know. So there's different traumas that we we know really happened in the world that you can ask people about later. So this was done um, with uh, Holocaust survive Holocaust survivors, um, and in in that study they found that everybody who went through the Holocaust remembered that it happened. They remember details a little bit more vividly of their trauma compared to the, the day-to-day lives. Um, so, you know, in other words, zero people remembered uh, this real trauma. Same with R R Rwanda. Uh, the R Rwanda genocide in 1994, I think it was, uh, an article just came out about six weeks ago that showed that none of those people who experienced that trauma forgot the trauma, repressed the trauma or anything like that. And just a final um, study, um, when you measure known um, awkward events in, 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 in medical procedures, so I think it was um, a genital um, procedure done on children. When you know, so it's kind of similar, similar kind of embarrassment um, to maybe abuse would be. When when that's documented, then you ask the children a year later, all of them remember it. So when you do these careful studies where you know it actually happened, and then you ask people um, about something fairly traumatic, um, you get you know hundred percent of people remembering that it happened. They, they do have some problems with the details sometimes. They're not perfect, but um, just that central um, tag in your mind that it happened 
seems to never be lost in real trauma. That's very interesting. So then the second thing which you said, which was interesting, is when you can, uh, when we've had, when we conduct other studies on individuals, you can see that in fact, the mind and memory is quite malleable. That within the right setting, particularly could be therapeutic settings, it is very um, real that you can implant memories or create false memories just through the process of, of manipulating the individual, maybe intentionally or not. Yeah, there's been some studies that show that you can implant false memories when somebody is really relaxed. Um, like, for example, in hypnosis, if you get somebody to relax, that seems to be when they become quite suggestible. Uh, so false memories have been created in that scenario. The other area of research that has created false memories is this area called um, imagination inflation um, research. And it's, it's basically similar to a therapeutic technique called guided imagery. So when you take people through um, imagining a scene as vividly as they can in, in a therapy session, for example, and you get them to expand on it week after week after week, then they come to misremember that as actually happening over time. And um, so um, one of the things to say about that area is when you scan people's brains and look at the networks that are activated during imagination, it activates all the same areas in a very similar way to when you remember something. So the brain is very, it, it, the brain is not great at distinguishing between imagination and real memories. They feel the same, they activate the same areas of our mind. So in other words, you can imagine things vividly over in, in, in therapy, and then you lose a little tag in your mind that that tells you that it was your imagination. You know, the, the, the source of the information um, is misplaced as being a real memory later on. Um, and just just to just to kind of relate to something I said earlier about um the relaxed state is seems to be a dangerous state for suggestion. This also happens in sleep paralysis. So during sleep, there's this uh, phenomena called sleep paralysis, where we wake up halfway and we kind of hallucinate dreams, but we don't, and, and we think that the dreams are actually happening in the room, you know, um, that's another source of um, false memories. Um, where somebody might, you know, imagine in their hallucination being uh, abused or something like that, and then they may think that it actually happened. Um, so anyway, so that answers some of your question. I had a question. Uh, you, you've mentioned uh, trauma tags. I use that expression. Um, in in the research you've done um, in terms of implant, implement implanting memories, can trauma trauma tags? be implanted as well because i think there's a difference between a traumatic event versus the punch bowl um, experiment or the lost in the mall experiment those are somewhat a bit more innocuous and i know there's eth there's ethical boundaries obviously to implanting traumatic memories but do you think do you feel the the effect could uh, be the same yeah i think there's similar the um similar memory processes in these events that we are allowed to implant, such as being lost in the mall, and those traumas that we're not allowed to implant in the in the in the mind. 
Um, so what you have to do with real traumas is look at the evidence outside of the experiments. You can't really do experiments with them. So in other words, um, there are maybe 10, 20 famous cases of, of false memories that occurred in legal cases where we're pretty sure that um, the memories were false, right? So, um, and sometimes there's DNA evidence that tells you that, oh, we know it's false, so, right? So um, one, one example of that is the, um, um, the George Franklin case where his daughter accused him in, in 1989, I think it was, um, that she then then accused him of of a murder. She accused him of a murder in 1969 of of her childhood friend, and then later on in 19 in the late in, in the mid 1990s, she accused him of two other murders. Now, there was DNA evidence for two of those murders, and it turned out that that DNA evidence matched another person. You know, so. Uh, this individual was creating false memories. Um, uh, Eileen Franklin was creating false memories um, using hypnosis. Um, so the so you sometimes have to go to the real life to get evidence of the trauma being implanted. And you know, so in in her in her case, um, Eileen Franklin, you know, she was going through hypnosis. Um, she was imagining what might have happened in 1969, building up the memory of seeing her father murder a child. And then she loses that source monitoring ability, the ability to monitor where the source of the information is coming from. And she incorrectly um, places the source as a real memory instead of her imagination during hypnosis, which is the correct source. Um, so yeah, it does happen in real trauma cases, but it's difficult to study. Um, um, and, and just let me tell you about something else that is kind of an experiment that we're not allowed to do in the lab, but it has happened in a, in a legal case. Um, a Richard Ofschi in the 1990s had a um, case that he was serving on, and the individual had confessed after his daughter um, 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 confronted him with um, allegations of severe sexual abuse, if I remember correctly, uh, Richard Offshe suspected that this individual had been confessing to, to false memories because he was so suggestible that when his daughter came to him and suggested that it happened, he um, had a technique of preying on it and um, doing a kind of similar technique to what his daughter did to try and recover memories. So uh, Richard Offshe did kind of like a, a false memory experiment where he, the psychologist R Richard Offshe, made up a, a, a new trauma and suggested that the his client um, think on it and and tell me if if this actually happened something completely false. Um, and sure enough, two days later, uh, the, his client came back and said, "Yeah, I can remember it now. I did, I did abuse my daughter in this way as well." And then Richard Offshe obviously then concluded that his client is very suggestible, and his praying technique that he's using to imagine what may have happened was creating false memories. 
Um, so there is quite a few cases um, that point to the idea that it has been uh, done in uh, real life as well, creating false memories. Can I move you now for a moment to uh, about your work, let's say within the investigative context? So let's say somebody is uh, in a therapeutic setting and they start to talk a little bit about maybe some memory and then the therapist starts to talk to him about it and then it goes to the police for investigation. How, how um, dangerous can investigative techniques be in enhancing what may be a false memory? Well, they're very dangerous. Um, sometimes the techniques of the therapist sometimes are the problem. Sometimes the client themselves creates a problem themselves. In other words, they come to believe that repressed memories are out are, are in them, and then they um, take the lead in it. Um, but a, a typical way that it can happen is the client, the th psychotherapy client at the beginning has some kind of problem that they want to solve. So they're searching for meaning and searching for a solution that may uh, make them uh, feel better, might give them a cure. So there's, there's always a good motive usually. Um, the therapist sometimes helps reappraise um, the um, parent, it's usually a parent, um, in the first parts of the therapy, in the in the suggestive therapies, and that reappraisal of the parent can shift the whole view of the client's childhood towards the negative, you know, so they can focus on the negative, and that's kind of like a, a seed that tends to happen at the beginning. So, you know, the reason that you're having relationship problems is probably your childhood. So it's very vague at that point, but it sets a seed of reappraising parents in the negative direction. And then what happens in, at the beginning of some therapies is the therapist then educates the uh, um, client over the first few weeks of how memory and trauma works. And they get it completely wrong in these bad therapies, you know, so they educate the client saying that, um, uh, you know, sometimes people with this physical disorder that you have is caused by trauma. I've seen this many times before in my practice, they might say. And um, if you can remember some of this trauma and and work through it is, or, or, you know, or unrepress it or work through it, um, then I, you, you, you may um, be cured um, or you may make progress and, and, and solve this problem. Well, it's like that famous That's book, sexy. that famous book from the 90s. You remember Courage to Heal? One of the, uh, right, the, one of the opening lines in the preface was, eh, if it feels like it happened, it probably did. That's kind of what That's you're right. getting at. So that's one of the kind of educational things that people are told at, at the beginning of these um, um, problematic therapies. And then that sets a seed, sets a scene for the false memories that then come afterwards. And, and it happens quite gradually sometimes where they work together to imagine what might have happened. And um, even without much suggestion from the uh, therapist, you can develop false memories. You know, because if you set up the motive to remember traumatic memories, uh, the therapist doesn't have to do much suggestion after that. They just have to do imagination um, 
exercises each week or uh, talk about what you can remember um, now. Um, uh, you know, this week, what else can you remember? Can you, you know, can you picture in your mind what the basement looked like? And, and then they expand that memory. And um, over time, the memories become very strange and very, um, uh, and, and, uh, false memories developed in this way and so you know you, you raise this issue and it's interesting because it really has has two aspects one you can be creating as you say you reapprise you, you reassess what the relationship with the parent was and then out from this therapy comes some sort of a a, a false memory of a, a past trauma let's say a sexual abuse but the the other thing that can happen is when somebody is searching for certain cures. In other words, there's things going on in their life that hasn't gone well. They may have had not the best childhood, maybe a number of issues like drug addiction and, and other things, and they're in with a therapist. And depending upon how the therapist discusses and relates their history with either a friend or a, a past partner or, or a past parent, you can maybe not necessarily create a false memory, but then you start to recast or relabel what that relationship was like and then now view it completely differently in order to try and, I don't want to say justify, but find a reason for what their current problems are. So there's really, you know, there's a very insidious one, which where you actually create a false memory, but another one where you go back and relabel or recategorize um, what a relationship was in the past. Those are two real possibilities with these type of therapeutic techniques. Yeah. And I, I think the reappraisal sometimes happens towards the beginning of the process and, and kind of memories of emotion are, are, are changed at that point. And, and then I think once that's set up, you, that's, you get false memories um, coming a bit later in the therapy process. Um, let, let me just ask you for a moment. Let's say something then goes on to the police um, and they're investigating, you know, you know, what would be your advice then with, because it's very hard in investigations where police are, are taking statements. Some of them may be much more relaxed about it, but depending upon how questioning uh, goes in an interview, it can only serve to reinforce what would otherwise be a false memory or an inaccurate memory. Yeah, well, the police have to be very careful not to say anything suggestive themselves. And um, in some of the cases I've worked on, they can be suggestive, you know, so they'll say things like, um, and people never, um, and so whenever people report this, it's always true. You know, they'll say th something similar to that to, to both the claimant and, um, to the accused as well sometimes. Um, so the way to do it properly is to maybe some, use something like a cognitive interview. So this is a type of interview that's been developed by psychologists that is much less suggestive. So in the cognitive interview, you build rapport you never give any suggestions through throughout the whole thing you build rapport at first and then you ask very open-ended questions about okay tell me about what you can remember and just let them fill the scene themselves and then you can ask oh could you tell me a little bit more about that again there's no suggestion um to get them to focus on specifics and um it tends to be the case that the first interviews tend to be more accurate than the later interviews. So if there's repetitive interviewing, um, an interviewing that's motivated um, to to kind of build a prosecution, um, 
it's the earlier interviews that tend to be um, more reliable than the later ones. Um, they can be unreliable, of course, if they've just been through two years of therapy. Okay, so the first ones can be unreliable, um, but they tend to get worse. They get, you know, the, the distortions tend to get worse over repeated um, a police interviews. So, in other words, it can really help the defense to see if they can find out if there's any been any prior interviews before they have the recorded interview, and then um, and that that those prior interviews might explain how the story became so tight and ready for a prosecution by the time of the recording recorded interview um um and certainty certainty that it happened tends to tends to get more and more um uh, the 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 claimant tends to get more and more sure that this abuse happened the more interviews they do it, it, you know, we've seen, I, I certainly seen, Michael and I have seen in some interviews where uh, an investigator or an interviewer is saying, you know, it's not your fault. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, you're very brave for coming forward. Uh, we know this is very hard. Um, I, I, I find those, I understand why officers say that, um, but I find it to be um, troubling because it can only reinforce what otherwise is is false information, making That's the person right. much more comfortable to come out with more false information. That's right. Reinforce is exactly the right word to use. In other words, when you say, "Well done," you're being very brave, and and this this happens in some of the cases that I've seen as well. Yeah, it incentivizes the person. It rewards the person, and and sometimes these these individuals are children. Um, it, it tells them that they're doing the, a good job and um, they're more likely to repeat whatever's rewarded later. Um, and I think, you know, police interviewers should hold back from doing that, even though it's a very natural thing to do to say you're being very brave. Um, I think they, they should be trained um, to hold back and be careful with that. I think that's really important. I, we're unfortunately running out of time. I, I could sit here for for more for another hour or two to discuss this. You've really laid this out very very well. Um, I know you're you're off there in in England, and uh, we've imposed on you. It's late at night, but hopefully we could have you come back because there's some other areas I'd like to explore. So, if we send you an email, you're going to come back. Yes, I would love to talk some more. Yes, and yeah, um, I'd love to hear some more questions. So, Professor, this is fantastic. I just. I want to thank you so much because I, I found this very educational. We've been focused in a few episodes on memory, and we're going to continue to be. So we're looking forward to uh, bringing you back in the next six months, if that would be okay. That would be great. Thank you very much for having thank me. Thank you so much, and thank you for your great work. This is really very important uh, work that you're doing. So we thank you very much and wish you a very good evening over there. Thanks again. We'll share this widely with our colleagues as well. Very important stuff. You know, I understand, especially when you're dealing with a young person in an interview, why police um, want to um, try and make the person comfortable. You know, an officer who's empathetic will see that somebody may be struggling. And so they want to try and relate to them um, and make it easier for them to come out with the information. The problem is the danger that, as we discussed with the professor, that you know, it can incentivize, it can reinforce. Well, there's a line, right? There's a line. Unfortunately, I see this in a lot of interviews, especially yeah. when you're dealing with a young person. 
and 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 ever since the me too movement which is hashtag we believe mm -hmm. and you start off from from the position of we believe you. believing what the complainant is about to say it's not much of an interview other than reinforcing you're very brave thank you you're doing extremely well we know this is very hard to talk about abuse regarding a parent all of that is is really um tainting the interview where where it could be done in a little bit more of an objective right. less um emotive manner still having the person um feel comfortable but but we're not having that and that's something i'm seeing reoccurring and you know, we we spoke in another episode about a, a a hypothetical case we have, and that's something I'm very interested in too. Because there's another aspect to this. The other aspect is you can take somebody who, for whatever reasons, has issues in their life, and then they're in therapy, and they come to believe that the person they used to be married to, or the person that they used to date, was the source of all their problems because they were abusing them. Right. And it may not be necessarily a false memory, but but they recharacterize how, when they were having, real, you know, intimate relations, when they were dating, that it was actually a course of relationship. Right. It was one where they were influenced. I mean, that is very. We it's, see this. It's relabeling. Right? It's it, it, very. Dangerous. It's what we call relabeling. It's yeah. very dangerous. So what I find so interesting, and his work is great. I mean, he's yeah, this guy's amazing. Professor Patias. I mean, his whole resume is studies on memory and um, trauma. trauma and dealing with all these areas but we we see this flow into a number of cases that we have that easily easily can lead to a wrongful conviction i mean these are recipes for disaster we got to have him back on oh we do he was good you know him and professor loftus the, the, you know it's been very helpful because like you said came out in the 80s it was in the 90s and then it sort of died off a bit where we were much more skeptical about these repressed or recovered memories, and now it seems to have resurfaced a bit. With a new label. <laughs> yeah, although his, I didn't read it in the DSM-5. Right. wasn't something I was looking for. But, you know, just, it's very uh, it's it's very enticing when you have something in DSM-5 to call it disassociative amnesia. You know, you sort of label it with something that's a, a clinical diagnosis, right. and all of a sudden it becomes yeah. real. Becomes real, validated, yeah. So... Uh, you know, this uh, Professor Patias is very, very helpful. Yes. This was great. So hopefully you've in, enjoyed this. Um, we're kind of focused on this a little bit. So we're going to revisit this, I think, in a few months. There's a few other areas we want to go into. But if you have any questions or comments about this, mm -hmm. um, we've been getting a number of, of comments and emails, again, looking at topics like this. So we really invite it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I can't reach for the pillow I'll right hand, now. I'll hand you I'm mine. I'm too tired today. It's okay. But, it's, uh, it's mine. <laughs> But if you like our, our podcast, please don't forget to like, uh, comment, subscribe, and share. And we can't thank you enough again to all our regular viewers and supporters. Thank you very much for watching uh, our podcast and really having such meaningful input. Have a good night. Thanks again. Thank you.